welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the vascular module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and our operational topic we'll be covering today is acute limb ischemia. The definition of acute limb ischemia is any sudden decrease in limb perfusion that causes a potential threat to the limb's viability. Typically, there's less than two weeks of symptoms, but it can have overlap with chronic leg ischemia. And acute limb ischemia is a relatively rare presentation of limb ischemia, with the majority of patients being asymptomatic or presenting with chronic limb ischemia. So what causes acute limb ischemia? I split the causes up into embolic, thrombotic, traumatic, and other potential causes. In terms of embolic events, cardiac embolus is the most common embolic cause for acute limb ischemia. Atrial fibrillation, valvular heart disease, myocardial infarction, and prosthetic heart valves are all potential risk factors for the development of thromboembolisms, and these can then flick off and travel down and become lodged in the arterial system in the limbs, causing acute limb ischemia. In contrast to chronic limb ischemia, where there may be collaterals that have developed, the embolism is traveling down to a limb where there are no collateral vessels, and that's why it's more likely to present with an acute presentation. Peripheral embolus can also occur, especially in the setting of atheromatous plaques, or if there are aneurysmal disease, such as in the aorta or popliteal vessels that can flick off clots to the legs. The next group is thrombotic, and this can either be primary or secondary. Primary thrombosis occurs in normal vessels, and this has to do with spontaneous thrombosis and hypercoagulable states. Secondary thrombosis occurs in diseased arteries. So this includes arteries that already have atherosclerotic disease, patients who have arteritis, grafts, or aneurysms. The typical presentation is that there's an atherosclerotic plaque that ruptures, leading to thrombosis and occlusion of the vessel. The next group is trauma, which can either be blunt, penetrating, or iatrogenic. And this can cause dissection of the intima of the vessel and thrombosis, or can cause direct occlusion of the vessel. And last is the other category, and this includes arterial dissection, illicit drug use causing vasospasm, external compression, and rarer things such as popliteal entrapment. So the pathophysiology of acute limb ischemia is that you get complete occlusion of a proximal artery in the absence of preformed collateral vessels, and this will lead to a severe acute ischemia. But you can also get occlusion as part of a chronic process where collaterals have formed, and this may present with a less severe acute limb ischemia. With the initial vessel occlusion, you get distal arterial vasospasm, and you get propagation of a clot due to the low flow state and because of the embolism or thrombosis that is occurring. This then goes through a process of breakdown of the clot with fibrinolysis and eventual collateralization or recanalization of the vessel. 
If this fibrinolysis process and collateralization doesn't occur quickly enough or there's not adequate treatment to re-deliver oxygen-carrying blood to the limb, then this will instead progress to cell injury and cell death. There's about a six-hour tolerance of ischemia that the limb will have before the muscles and nerves become irreversibly damaged. Another couple of things to be aware of is that initially the leg is very white in color because there's empty veins because no blood is getting into the leg. But after about 6 to 12 hours, the leg vasodilates and the capillaries will fill with stagnant deoxygenated blood that will lead to a mottled appearance. And if flow isn't restored, then the arteries will fill with thrombus and the capillaries eventually rupture and this leads to a fixed blue staining of the skin, which is a sign of irreversible ischemia. Which leads us into talking about the clinical diagnosis and presentation of acute limb ischemia. The diagnosis of acute limb ischemia is a clinical diagnosis, which is based on your history and physical examination. The classical presentation of acute limb ischemia is described as the six P's. And these are pain, which is usually severe and out of proportion to the clinical signs that you can see. And for acute limb ischemia, you want this pain to be at rest. Paralysis paresthesia, and paralysis and paresthesias are both evidence of nerve ischemia, a pale limb that is pulseless and perishingly cold, which is also called pyclothermia. But as I mentioned before, a pale leg usually occurs early with the leg progressing to a mottled appearance due to that capillary pooling in the six to 12 hour window. And this is still potentially partially reversible, but developing fixed staining with modelled areas that don't blanch to pressure after that 12-hour period, indicating irreversible ischemia. The other thing to note that if this is acute on chronic limb ischemia and there's some preformed collaterals, then the progression to this severe type of ischemia may be slower and often involves a stepwise deterioration. So they may have symptoms such as claudication or evidence of chronic limb ischemia, which suddenly changes and progresses over a few days. And that's a sort of acute on chronic presentation. Features that may indicate an embolic event over an in-situ thrombosis include an acute white leg, no prior history of claudication, normal contralateral pulses, so suggesting that there isn't widespread atherosclerotic disease, and a likely primary embolic source, such as a patient being in atrial fibrillation. So on your history for acute limb ischemia, you're going to ask them about their presentation and the acuity of onset, as well as how the symptoms have progressed since they started. You also want to know about any concomitant symptoms or symptoms in the other leg, You're also going to ask them about their cardiac history and a general vascular history. For young patients, you want to ask them about procoagulant issues, such as in the family or previous clots themselves. And you want to ask things like if they have severe back pain, which would indicate an aortic dissection, and whether they've had any recent endovascular interventions. On examination, you are obviously going to examine the limb, 
looking at the colour, how cold it is, feeling for all of the pulses, whether they're present or absent, feeling for aneurysms and making sure you feel the contralateral limb as well. You also want to examine the limb locally, doing a neurological assessment as well. And also perform a cardiac exam and an examination of the abdominal aorta. At this point, you should have made your clinical diagnosis of acute limb ischemia. Some further investigations you would do at this point include blood tests, including full blood count, looking at the platelets, coagulation studies, electrolytes, glucose, renal function, their cardiac enzymes, And you also might consider a urinalysis looking for myoglobinuria, a chest x-ray and an ECG. Next, you're going to consider whether any adjuvant imaging is required. Imaging should only be obtained if the limb is not immediately threatened, and we'll go into this in a minute, and you think it's going to alter your immediate management of the patient. And this could include an angiogram, which can be done as a CT angiogram or can be done as an angiogram under fluoroscopic guidance by the vascular surgeon or interventional radiologist in the operating suite. And you could also consider a vascular ultrasound. In my experience, often they would go directly to a CT angiogram in these situations because it is readily available, quick to use, and um, will often confirm the diagnosis. The other important reason you might want to do some investigations is to enable planning of what intervention might be required for the patient. The next thing I want to talk about is the severity classification of acute limb ischemia. And this is called the Rutherford classification. And it splits the severity of acute limb ischemia up into type 1, type 2A, type 2B, and type 3. Type 1 is considered a viable limb that is not immediately threatened. These patients will present with usually one to two days of symptoms of rest pain, but no sensory loss or paralysis. Type 2A is a marginally threatened limb, which is salvageable if treated. And this usually presents with rest pain, but no or only mild sensory loss and no paralysis. Type 2B is an immediately threatened limb, and this is salvageable if treated emergently. These patients present with severe rest pain, an acutely pale limb, with partial or complete sensory loss and partial paralysis. And type 3 is an irreversibly ischemic limb that requires primary amputation or palliation of the patient depending on their comorbidities and clinical status. And these limbs have complete paralysis, complete sensory loss and absent capillary refill. This classification system is important because it correlates with what you should be doing to manage the patient. In our curriculum, it talks about recognising when it's safe to manage patients conservatively, at least initially. And looking at the Rutherford classification, this really is type 1 patients who have a viable limb that's not immediately threatened, and these patients will have only claudication and mild rest pain. 
These patients can be managed with anticoagulation and expectant management and may improve, meaning that they don't ever need revascularization. The next thing to consider is which patients need to go straight to surgery with no imaging investigation beforehand. And these are really those category 2B Rutherford ischemia. So these are the immediately threatened limbs that have slow or absent capillary refill and partial paralysis and sensory loss. And these patients need urgent surgical intervention to prevent limb loss. For category 1 or category 2A, there would be time to do investigations prior to any intervention. So how do we manage acute limb ischemia? Initial management includes resuscitation and treatment of any medical conditions. You should approach the patient as per the CRISP algorithm, with correction of dehydration, cardiac failure, hypoxia, and pain. Send bloods, as we talked about, and also do the ECG looking for any arrhythmias or evidence of heart failure. A blood gas should be done looking for any evidence of metabolic acidosis or hyperkalemia. The next initial treatment should be anticoagulation, and typically this is done with a heparin infusion usually 5,000 units intravenously immediately and then an infusion started in order to restrict the propagation of the thrombus, which will make the problem worse. It's also important to apply oxygen in order to maximise the oxygen delivery to the tissues. In general, the treatment options include revascularization, which can be done via surgical or endovascular means, amputation or palliation. In terms of surgical revascularization, immediate surgery is required for category 2B ischemia after resuscitation. I know I've mentioned that preoperative imaging isn't indicated in these cases, but there are certain scenarios where you may be unclear about the potential pathology, especially if somebody doesn't have a femoral pulse and you're worried about aortoiliac disease or an aortic dissection, that may be a time to do a urgent CTA on the way to the operating theatre. An alternative is on-table angiography at the time of your groin exploration. The choice of operation depends on the underlying pathology. And given the ageing population we deal with now, Often patients will have underlying atherosclerosis complicating acute limb ischemia, even if they have a primary embolic cause. And so an experienced vascular surgeon should be involved in the operation because it may become more complicated and even potentially require a bypass. So in general, the surgical options include embolectomy, thrombectomy, and bypass. Embolectomy is in our operative management nose of our surgical curriculum. So I'm just going to run through a little bit of how you might perform a femoral embolectomy. The patient should be placed in the operating room supine, usually with both arms out. And this can be done under local, regional or general anesthetic. And there needs to be close communication throughout the procedure between the surgeon and the anesthetist and close monitoring of the patient's blood pressure, arrhythmias, development of acidosis or hyperkalemia. Typically, you'd prep both the groins and lower limbs and place the foot in a transparent bag so that you can inspect it during the procedure. 
The first step is exposure of the common femoral artery bifurcation, which you do via a groin incision. The surface marking of the artery is at the mid-inguinal point, and you can make either a vertical or a longitudinal incision crossing this line, either in the groin crease or going up and down. You then deepen the incision through the subcutaneous fat, cut through the femoral sheath and expose the artery. You then place a vascular sling around the artery, which you can use to retract the vessel, and you then have to identify the branches and the bifurcation where it bifurcates into the profunda femoris and the superficial femoral artery, and these should also be isolated with vascular slings. The next step is to perform a transverse arteriotomy, and you usually do this in the common femoral artery proximal to the bifurcation. You want to remove any thrombus that's you see there with gentle suction or with forceps, and you can momentarily release the sling in order to um, force the thrombus out through your arteriotomy. If there's no pulsatile flow present, you then want to pass either a four or five French balloon catheter or embolectomy catheter up into the proximal aorta, inflate it and withdraw it. And you're hoping to clear any thrombus so that inflow can be achieved. If you can't achieve inflow, then there's potential for aortic disease and a formal bypass may be required. You then want to establish your outflow by passing an uninflated three or four French catheter as far distally as possible, and then you're going to inflate it and withdraw back, again trying to remove any thrombus. You control bleeding while you're doing this by having your assistant apply gentle traction to a vascular sling that's been double-looped around the vessel. And then they loosen that traction as you pull the Fogarty catheter back through your arteriotomy. And you're going to repeat this until there's no further thrombus seen and there's adequate backflow. If you can, you should perform a completion angiography and make sure to flush the distal arteries with heparinized saline. And you repair the arteriotomy with 5-0 proline sutures. And make sure you inspect the foot afterwards once the silastic ties have been removed. And you should consider calf fasciotomies at this stage as well. Postoperatively, you want to apply liberal use of anticoagulation, um, especially if this was an embolic event. And they say to send the specimen, the thrombus that you've removed, for histology and culture. So endovascular techniques are the other potential option for revascularization. And these would be indicated in CAT2A ischemia with a threatened limb or CAT1 ischemia. In these situations, because you don't have an immediately threatened limb, you have time to plan interventions and alternatives and to perform investigations. So the options include thrombolysis or percutaneous thrombectomy with stenting. So thrombolysis is where a catheter is placed within the thrombus percutaneously and an infusion of a thrombolytic agent such as tissue plasminogen activator or streptokinase or urokinase is then run as a low-dose infusion into the thrombus itself. The idea is that you may be able to open up smaller or larger vessels, and you can also uncover the cause of the thrombosis, which could then be subsequently treated with endovascular or open techniques. The contraindications to thrombolysis are active internal bleeding, and some other relative contraindications include weighing the risk against the potential benefits of limb salvage, 
if it's within two weeks of a major operation, two weeks of a stroke or TIA, end-stage kidney disease, pregnancy, within two months of brain surgery or having a known intracerebral tumour, GI hemorrhage or within 10 days of trauma. Potential complications include a stroke, major hemorrhage, minor hemorrhages, distal embolization, and reperfusion injuries. Apparently, it's pretty common that they would do thrombolysis first and they'd leave the catheter in for 24 to 48 hours and then perform an angiogram. And if it was clear, they'd remove the catheter and if not, look at other options for management. Percutaneous thrombectomy is another option. And this is where they percutaneously access the vessel and then use aspiration and suction, or there's some specific thrombectomy catheters that can be used that sort of rotate and break up the clot, for example, to remove the thrombus percutaneously. This is often followed by either thrombolysis or anticoagulation. The other management option for acute limb ischemia is amputation. And unfortunately, some patients can present with irreversible ischemia and they would have muscle paralysis, tense, swollen compartments and fixed skin staining. If the patient isn't moribund and requiring palliation, then it's pretty dangerous to consider revascularization in these situations. And we'll talk about reperfusion injuries shortly. But these patients have a very poor prognosis and may require amputation of the limb. And then the last thing is palliation. So sometimes these patients present and they're very elderly, highly comorbid, and they have irreversible ischemia of the limb. And it's important to consider all of their comorbidities and their functional status and have a discussion about the options, which may include comfort care. The next topic I'm going to talk about is the consequences of reperfusion of a limb, and this is reperfusion injury. Revascularization of an ischemic limb results in sudden venous return of blood that contains all of the anaerobic metabolites, is acidotic, and has a high potassium concentration. This reperfusion injury can cause systemic signs such as hyperkalemia, systemic acidosis leading to hypotension and arrhythmias, and myoglobinuria, which can cause renal failure. Patients can also develop a SIRS-type response to the reperfusion. The local consequences of a reperfusion injury is that the blood enters the limb that has had a ischemic insult and has dead and dying cells, and this is associated with a huge influx of inflammatory cells and also leakage of fluid into the compartment. The definition of compartment syndrome is an increase in the hydrostatic pressure within a closed osteofascial space, causing decreased perfusion of the muscles and nerves within that compartment. Or in simple terms, it's a potentially irreversible compromise to circulation and function due to increased pressure within that limited space. And basically, the continuously increasing pressure eventually overcomes the intramuscular arteriolar pressures, so blood can't enter the capillaries in that compartment. And this leads to further ischemia and loss of function of the muscle and nerves to the compartment. The diagnosis of compartment syndrome is clinical. 
And the history is usually pain out of proportion to what you can see and pain on passive stretch of the compartments. Some clinical signs of compartment syndrome are usually evident once it's too late. And they are evidence that you've had a ischemic injury that has already occurred and may be partly or completely irreversible. And this includes a pale limb, pulseless, paralyzed, paresthesia, and painless, which interestingly are similar to the features of acute limb ischemia. Management of acute compartment syndrome of the limb is a two-incision, four-compartment fasciotomy. And they talk about doing this at the time of reperfusion of the limb because you're going to have a really high suspicion that the patient will develop compartment syndrome. So you might as well do it at the time of the surgery. The aims of this procedure is to open the skin widely in order to allow a good view of the underlying fascia and that the fascia is split over its entire length under vision. Fasciotomy of the leg is in the operative management does section of our curriculum. So I'm going to run through how to do that now. Two long incisions are made on either side of the leg. The lateral incision is made from two to three centimetres below the fibula head to avoid the common perineal nerve that runs around the lateral side. And then you extend that all the way down to two to three centimetres proximal to the lateral malleolus. You raise superficial skin flaps to identify the fascia over a wide area. And at this part of the operation, you have to be mindful of the superficial perineal nerve, which proximally is found between perineus longus and brevis, but distally it can pierce the fascia and go from the lateral to the anterior compartment and can potentially be injured. Once you can clearly see the fascia, you're going to incise the fascia both above and below the line between the anterior and lateral compartment along the length in order to open the fascia of the anterior and lateral compartments completely. The medial incision is made along the posterior medial aspect of the tibia, usually about a finger's breadth behind it, starting about two centimeters below the tibial tuberosity level and going as far as two centimeters above the medial malleolus. And again, you're going to raise your flaps, pushing away the subcutaneous tissue with blunt dissection. And then you need to incise through the fascia that is just behind the posterior border of the tibia, and then use a periosteal elevator to clear the soleus muscle off the tibia posteriorly to then be able to see the fascia of the deep posterior compartment, which you also have to incise through in order to completely release all four compartments of the leg. In this medial aspect, you need to be mindful superficially of the great saphenous vein and nerve. And then you perform a temporary closure with a vac dressing. And that's it for acute limb ischemia. Hopefully that covers everything that we are supposed to know from our curriculum. Obviously, it's quite a complex topic, and I'm sure the vascular surgeons would have a lot more to say about it than I do. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I love reading your reviews, and it helps other people to find the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at firstincision.
Happy studying! <laughs>